Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. Thank you for joining us on this chilly winter day in America. Today, I am talking to one of the really striking personalities that came out in the early 2020s. And I want to catch up with C.J. Pearson to find out what he, what's been going on with him since he made such a big splash a few years ago. Um, and and I, when I say I want to catch up, I mean, I really don't know. <laughs> I, I, I really don't know. I, I, I mean, I know that he's doing what he does, but I, I, I want to hear more. C.J., welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you're doing well, Ron. I'm all right. Thank you. So you... you know, I, I think pretty much everyone watching this knows your story. You're a, you're a guy who is going to be compared to me, always a very young person mm-hmm. and compared to everyone watching this, always a very young person, <laughs> but you're, you are nonetheless a young adult. Now, uh, when we first be- became familiar with you, you were a teen, maybe you were 19 or something now. Are you still technically yeah. a teen? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm 20 years old now. 20, so when I well, that's first- over. Yeah, yeah. So that my teenage years are behind me. But yeah, when I first started off, um, my first ever YouTube video went viral. I was just 12 years old. And so I was not even a teen then. I was a preteen, um, just causing trouble on the internet and uh and some headaches for my liberal uh parents. But it, it's been it's been a great journey since then. And um, you know, I've been to college, I went to the University of Alabama, of course, and now I'm in here in LA at the, in the belly of the weeds working for uh Prager U. All right. So so We'll talk about that in a minute, just for a little bit more background. I mean, you you started blogging. I mean, again, even though I know everybody knows, got to do this basic stuff. You started <laughs> blogging very early on. And it appears to me that, that you, from reading the story that you were attracted to the sort of the conservative side of things by studying up on John McCain, of all people, mm-hmm. who, all you know, if we didn't know, Everything we knew about John McCain, we would associate with being a conservative, I suppose. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's kind of interesting to me because I remember when I was in junior high school, we had a mock election. uh, And we had to. Between Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, this was 1976. And somehow I was. I don't know how it happened, but I was Gerald Ford. Mm-hmm. And because I'm not the kind of guy who usually would win elections at school. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't... Stop the steal, Ron. You know, right. you, were, there, were there some mail-in ballots? We've got to look into it. Right, right. Well, I, I remember feeling very comfortable, though, in what were relatively conservative space in those days. Um, so, you know, what your story rang a little bit of a bell with me, but you, you, you became this media personality, a very well-spoken young guy 
who also happens to be black and from the South, thereby confounding many stereotypes. Now you mentioned your parents. <laughs> um, you okay with them these days? You know, we're good. We're, we're, we're in a good place. You know, when I was first starting out, I was definitely a lot more contentious, a lot more um, strain on that relationship. But I think um, like a lot of families, you know, we have our disagreements, we have our differences of opinion, and eventually you have to grow up and you have to realize that it is okay to disagree. And, you know, the funny thing that I often, you know, give them a hard time about, I'm like, guys, you guys made me a conservative. You know, I grew up going to church every single Sunday, going to Bible study every single Wednesday, um, you know, being told about the importance of family, growing up in a fiscally conservative household. Like, even if we had, it didn't mean that we should spend. Um, those were life lessons that were told to me every single day, drilled into me. Uh, and so it was never difficult for me to embrace conservatism. Um, but unlike them, you know, I hadn't grown up, you know, I was so young, I hadn't grown up you know, polluted by this idea that the color of my skin should dictate my politics. So it was just for me, I made a decision based on the values I had, the morals I had, and um, the things that I had been taught. And that is what led me, um, you know, the conservative movement. And what's interesting, you were talking about that mock election in 2008. I had one as well. Um, and it was, of course, the 2008 election. It was the second grade. And of course, the candidates were then Senator McCain and also then Senator Obama. And I had to vote in that mock election. And I remember doing what every good citizen at the country uh, in the country at the time was doing. I remember watching uh, the debate. And this is when Candy Crowley was at CNN. And second grade. I'm, I'm, second yeah, grade. second grade. And when I say Candy Crowley, I feel like I'm dating myself only as much as a 20 year old could possibly do. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, but, you got, uh, yeah, you're like, but, Scott, you're you're spoiled milk, man. <laughs> I know. I, like, I'm going to apply for my AARP card soon. But, um, you know, I remember watching that debate. Um, and realizing that what they were doing and talking about was were very, very important issues. Now, again, I'm six or seven years old. I have no idea what Iran is, what healthcare reform is, or any of that of that nature. But what they were doing and what they were talking about was important. And the story of John McCain, his personal story resonated with me. You know, my grandfather, who served 20 years in the United States Army, um, had been surrounded growing up with all of his awards and medals and all of those things from his military career. And I respected the sacrifice that he had made on behalf of our country. And so I voted for him um, in that at the end of the week uh, during that mock election. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I come home to tell my grandparents about who I had voted for because I was so excited. And I say, I voted for John McCain. And my grandma looks at me a little, with, with a little bit of a puzzled look and says, you must think that you're white. And it was one of the craziest things because I had no idea what identity politics was. I had no idea that there was this pervasive view that black people were to vote, vote a certain way because of the color of their skin. I was just a kid voting my values at the ripe age of seven. And, and so then after that, though, I wanted to figure out where I actually stood on the issues. And I remember binge watching CPAC speeches on YouTube, looking at MSNBC and Fox News, and then ultimately arriving to the conclusion, you know, the values that I grew up around, the values that I know to be right, and the values that were commonplace in my Southern Christian home were conservative values. And uh, that, or the, those are the values I was proud to support and have continued to support since then. Why do you suppose the, this there was another value there, which obviously your grandmother expressed, which was, let's give it the best possible um, name instead of identity politics. Let's say that your grandmother considered, you know, as a black person, she considered the Democratic Party to be the party that had the best interest of African Americans at heart, and yeah. that this was something that you should know that you should know 
as a as a as an as a an instinctual matter. Yeah. W did that not get across to you, or did you reject it? You know, for me, I don't. I, I rejected it. I thought it was a. I thought it was a silly reason to support anything. Um, even at that age, just because the color of my skin was a certain way that I was supposed to just be a card carrying Democrat, I, I didn't necessarily subscribe to that view. But I was okay with getting there. You know, that's the thing. I didn't have this um, reflexive opposition to the Democrat Party at that age. Again, I didn't know what the Republican Party was or what the Democrat Party was, um, but I knew that I wanted to find out. And wherever the facts led me, wherever my values led me, that is where I was going to end up and that is where I was going to be proud to be. Uh, and for me, it was the Republican Party. Um, but I also do understand why she felt the way in which she did is the the product of decades of social conditioning, of, of telling Black people that there is only one way for them to vote, only one way for them to think. Um, but again, thankfully, as being someone who was a part of a younger different genera a younger generation at a different time, I hadn't been tainted by those views. I hadn't grown up listening to the Joanne Reeds and the Al Sharpens of the world telling me that my blackness um, was synonymous with leftism and all those things. I was able just to make the call um, that was best for me. And as I've grown up, I am, I am, that call is validated for me every single day. If you look at every single city in America that is ran by progressives, I'm talking about the city of Chicago, Detroit, Flint, so many places all across this country, and you look at the state of urban communities within those cities, you see poverty, you see destitution. You know, I just did a story here at uh, PragerU uh, on last week, and it was talking about how in the city of Chicago, 23, uh, I don't know, no, it's actually 55 schools don't have a single student proficient in either reading or math. In the city of Baltimore, same thing, but 23 schools don't have a single student proficient in math. I don't know how you can continue to justify that as a member of the black community voting for the same policies of the same party that continues to use and abuse us and only finds a damn to give about us when they're asking for our vote. Well, I think the answer to that is systemic racism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, right. that, turns, but, that turns out to be the answer. And also not yeah. enough, not enough money. Yeah. Not enough yeah, money is being it, spent on teachers. But what's interesting about that is if you look at, you know, a, a, for me, you know, my parents, we, my, they moved us out of the, uh, out of the blue school district to the conservative school district where everyone was trying to move to. Um, but what was interesting about that is that this district that we left, the district that we fleed because it was just going downhill, spent far more money per pupil than the conservative school district um, that, that, that I moved into. But yet we had far more, uh, you know, quality education, far less, you know, drama within the school, less fighting, less drugs, less all of that. And it just goes to show, you know, it's, it's so interesting. They always want to throw money at a problem, but that isn't the case. You know, I saw a video going viral on Twitter last week where there's this huge school in Indiana and people were saying how racist it was. This school was so big and how, you know, it, it's weird how this school can has, has so much money to do whatever they want to do. But in cities like Indianapolis, you don't have that same quality of education, but yet then someone came with the receipts and they were like, well, Indianapolis is actually spending far more money per pupil than this school district in suburban Indiana is. So it's really about how you actually appropriate those funds. Number one, which people, always seem to forget on the left, but also too, it's about what's happening at home, right? Um, if you're just sending your kid into school and thinking that, you know, that you have no role in their education as well, you're going to get those results and we're going to see what we're seeing in far too many urban environments um, today. But, you know, what's interesting, you brought up systemic racism 
And I love that you did because the left loves to talk about that word, but doesn't love to talk about the history of racism in this country, ironically enough. But since it's Black History Month, I think that we should. You know, I also didn't want to be a member of a party that founded the KKK. I also didn't want to be a member of the party of Jim Crow or the party of the slave codes or the party that told my great grandmother that she belongs at the back of the bus because I believed that I deserved better. And I believe still today that every single person that looks like me deserves better. Uh, and, and I think that we. We just have to, as a community, arrive to that point in unison and say that we are tired for settling for less, and it is time for us to start settling for more. So here you are telling that to an old Jewish guy, okay? <laughs> is anyone in your community, meaning Black Af Black, Black Americans or African Americans, yeah. is any are, are they listening to C.J. Pearson? You know, I think I think it's happening more and more. If you look at, you know, what we've seen in, in recent presidential cycles, we see black men, uh, especially black men saying this is enough. You know, what are these people doing for me? What has the left done for me? Uh, you know, what have they done? Brought us more poverty, brought us more crime, brought us uh, more, immigrant, any... more immigrants, more uh, immigrants right. that are taking jobs that they that they want. Uh, and it's like, yeah, you know, America first policies benefited everyone in this country of every shade of every color. And then the left, you know, knew it did, which is why they tried to demonize the phrase so much and try to make it seem as if this was some nativist, um, you know, or white nationalist uh, political policy prescription when it wasn't that at all. It's about getting our own affairs in order here uh, so that we can best provide for the people that were born here. And that's not, there's not racist, it's not xenophobic. It's called having, again, your own house in order before you roll out the welcome mat for people who, yeah, while they're in need, there are Americans in need here as well. But, you know, to your point, if you look at Georgia, the reason Stacey Abrams didn't win in 2018 before, uh, you know, she lost by a landslide this year. But the reason she didn't win in 2018 was because black men did not like Stacey Abrams. They said, you know, she's not talking to us. She's not speaking to our community. And that's that. And then this year, what we saw again in 2022, you had folks like Killer Mike, you know, the, the, a huge rapper, huge name in Atlanta, who is like, I don't really know. If, I think Stacey Abrams is taking us for granted. And I actually kind of like the things that Governor Kemp is doing. I like his policies. I like what he's done with these economic opportunity zones and things like that. I like him. And you know what they tried to do? You saw MSNBC calling Killer Mike, who was is most infamous for being a gangster rapper, tried to call him a sellout and an Uncle Tom because he he because he wanted more for our community. And it's so interesting. And I think that's what we're going to continue to see is as you see more and more people that look like me waking up in America, you're going to have this. The left is going to run the same playbook that they always do. The most dangerous thing in the eyes of the left is a black man with a mind of his own. Look at what they do to Clarence Thomas. Look at what they do to every black conservative of today, whether it's me, whether it's Candace Owens, whether it's whoever, they want to make us buckle under the face of their threats and their attacks because they know that the more and more black people that open their eyes in this country and say enough is enough, we want more, we deserve better, they know that they will lose their hold on the electoral politics of this country, which is why they're now resorting to importing voters uh, into this country because they know that they are no longer going to be viable with a community they have held under their boat their boot for far too long i mean this issue with with the control of cities the cities that you mentioned that have been driven into the ground by democratic politicians who start out as jewish irish and italian politicians in the 50 you know the 40s 50s 60s yeah. and then as these communities predominantly 
move it to the suburbs, leave, you know, exit the cities, the industrial and commercial base of these cities is destroyed. Um, these are black run cities by and for the benefit of African-Americans. And there seems to be this incredible toleration for professional black a political class that can really do no wrong. Um, and and, and I mean, that seems to me to be something that really has to change politically for blacks. When, you know, when blacks in the Democratic Party have a very good thing going if they're leaders, mm -hmm. but not so much yeah. if they're voters. Yet the yeah, voters not so much if you're the yeah, if you're the actual constituents, you you are you are left behind. You know, if you look at the policies that are that are really ravaging the city of Chicago right now, who are they hurting the most? They're hurting things like single black mothers who cannot allow their child to go out and play without the threat of them coming back home in a body bag because of how unsafe it has become in that city because of things like the defund the police movement and just other soft on crime policies that have made it a lot more convenient to be a criminal than even a member of law enforcement today. It's interesting that we hold law enforcement to a higher and more difficult standard than we hold even criminals in this country, especially in inner cities. And, uh, you know, there's a popular saying, you know, within the black community, you know, all skin folk and kin folk, meaning just because you look like me doesn't mean you have my best interest um, at heart. And I think it's exactly to what you just said. Right. If you look at the city of Chicago, if you look at, you know, uh, places like Ferguson and Flint and all of these places, there are tons of leaders that may look like their constituents, but it doesn't actually mean they're being well served, uh, you know, by them. And, 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 and but the problem just isn't I, I don't think black political leaders and black leaders on the left. Um, but it's also the fact that we have to demand better on the national level as well. If we continue to see from the black community 93% support for the same politicians as long as they have a D behind their name, it is not helpful. It is not conducive to progress. And I think that it is going to continue to deliver the same results that it has given us cycle after cycle, year after year. And it is destitution, it is poverty, and it is squalor. And we have to resolve, again, to demand more, to settle for more, and to stop rejecting less. Like it, it, it's 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 so, seriously, it's akin to battered women syndrome. We allow the left to use us and abuse us whenever they want to, whenever they please, and we allow them to atone for it whenever they choose to say "I love you" again when it comes to another election cycle. I'm over that. I'm over of of being a victim or of being um, someone that they can just call at 4 a.m. essentially uh, whenever they need something from us. I think black <laughs> voters deserve more than that. In other words, black voters deserve better than the booty calls. That is that what we deserve more than the booty call, and it's essentially what we've been given. And it's <laughs> and it's a shame. And I think that again, it, it, we have to know our worth as a as a political demographic, as a political block. The the, the left needs us more than we need them. And they have, and they make, and, and, but they don't know it. And I think that they, and they will not know it until we give them uh, a reason to know it and we remind them of it, uh, which we have done a very, very bad job at doing. And, you know, what's interesting is like, I'll get confronted, you know, sometimes in, in public by folks who, um, you know, may not like a certain video or whatever. And they're like, how could you be a Republican? How could you be a conservative? You know, how do you support those white folks or whatever? I'm like, you know, here's the deal. Let's just do let's just look at this a little bit from a strategy perspective. Right. Um, do you think that supporting if all of us 
all of us thought the same, if all of us supported one political party, wouldn't that mean that that other political party would never, ever have to actually cater to our desires or our needs or our agenda? Because they would never compete for our votes because they know they could never get it. And so, yes, I support the things that I do, and I am a conservative, a proud one, but I think that you should realize that it is actually beneficial for us to not be a monolithic community. It is actually beneficial for us to have different beliefs and different values and different principles and actually be a competitive demographic because – Here's the deal. It hurts us in these cities because you know the leftists know, progressives know, they can do whatever they please. You can even wear a KKK costume if you're the governor of Virginia, and people will still vote for you. And I, and I think it's a shame. Well, and again, well, you we, know, you know what else is a shame though? What we have now, which we didn't even have ten years ago, is it has become synonymous. In other words, what you said was, you know, where are the, where's the representation of black issues, where's the representation of a black agenda by Democrats, to which now the far left Democrats who are in control of places like Chicago and New York City are saying, oh, no, we got that for you, because yeah. we're going to be soft on crime. We're going to give a green light to, to, to what we consider to be minor, uh, you know, minor uh, criminal conduct. And we're going to to have no cash bail, and we're, and and all these so-called reforms, which are associated with being beneficial for the black community, because you see that's because blacks see are 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 victimized by the system. So we're going to remove this victimization, but without, of course, acknowledging that the biggest victims of black crime are black people. Yeah. And yeah. so so what they've done is they've answered C.J. Pearson and said, oh, no, we got that now. We now have a black agenda. You know, look, look what we're doing, you know, in, in all this reform. And the, the irony is that there aren't enough black politicians to make that happen. These are now Democrats, many of them young Democrats. Yeah. Who are stepping up and embracing a, a far left agenda a lot of it is associated with soros yeah that is really damaging to, to to black communities but which the white people who vote for them in their districts believe is the progressive anti-racist position to take such as the criminal uh, justice reforms that should scare the hell out of you as a black man yeah yeah and it disproportionately harms our community as to everything that you that you're saying here. These soft on crime policies, they hurt black people. Uh, again, going back to the Chicago example, why should a single black mother not be not feel comfortable allowing her child to go play on the sidewalk? You think people in the suburbs have that fear? No, because they actually live in more conservative areas where they actually still enforce the law, where they handcuff criminals and not the police. And I think that's the real racism we should be talking about in this country today. The fact that it is far more dangerous, far more consequential negatively to live in a progressive city as a person of color uh, than it is to in a conservative place. Uh, and I think that is one of the biggest things here is that you have these people who push these policies that they themselves don't actually have to live under. Well, yes, they may live in the city where they just chose to defund the police. What happens? Because, you know, I live in L.A. now. This has been 
particularly illuminating here is that you have these L.A. city councilmen and all these folks who are like, OK, let's defund the police. But yet you go in certain neighborhoods here in Los Angeles and there's private police. So it's like, you know, no police for you if you live in Compton or Inglewood or, you know, South L.A., but. Us here in West L.A., you know, where we are still liberal and leftist and progressive, we want to make sure that we have an extra buffer of security to keep us, the criminal element, away from us. And we can afford it um, because, you know, we're we're successful and all of those things and well, nothing is, wrong with can that. Can we really say that the people in Compton are wistfully wishing that the Compton, the LAPD was in their faces? And in, in other words, it's not yeah. as if there's been a good relationship historically between the LAPD and black communities in LA, right? Yeah. It's been a bad one, in fact. Yeah. So, I mean, to some extent, this is a problem that is, you know, many police departments have made it easy to be anti-cop. Yeah. Um, is Do you think it's going to be necessary for these? I mean, I was about to say, are things going to just get so bad that it, they'll have to get better? But as you say, if you've got private police protecting the people who matter, the people who mm -hmm. have power and money yeah. and who really make things happen, maybe it isn't going to get better because they're fine. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, and that's, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it's not, it's not ever going, I, I think until you expose the hypocrisy and you put it in people's faces and you show the people in Compton and in Inglewood is that, yeah, it may sound like defund the police sounds like such a great idea, so bold and so innovative, um, but realize that it's not getting defunded everywhere as the money is just getting appropriated in a different way. It's going into different people's pockets. It's going into private police. And so while you have to bury your cousin, your brother, your homeboy, your friend, whatever else, um, that's not happening in Beverly Hills. It's not happening in West LA or anything like that. It's happening in your neighborhood, in your community, because these people... They devise these ideas in their lecture halls at UC Berkeley and Stanford and all of these things. And they say, well, this is such an innovative way to take on systemic racism in this country. When in all actuality, it's a great place to ensure the continued extermination of black people in this country. Uh, and, and the thing is, like, what's incredible to me about most of these things is that most black people never have asked for these things, right? They've never actually are eager to support these things. Um, now the media and the left is a good way of convincing black people eventually that they that these are the things that they've always needed. They've needed to defund the police. They need social workers responding to burglary calls and all of these things. They're, they're very good at brainwashing and gaslighting black people into believing that these are actual solutions that will benefit them. But these, are, these ideas aren't coming because there's some chorus of folks in the black community saying, we want to defund the police actually on the ground, which is why I think that you saw a pivot even from folks like Stacey Abrams. I remember, you know, in 2018, like she talked about it. She talked about, you know, reappropriate money from the police and all of these things. But now you saw in almost every single battleground state across the country with the, the, the progressive candidate saying, actually, we love the police. I wonder why they're saying that, Ron. I wonder why they're saying that. They must have gotten some polling or just, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, to I think there may people. very well have been some polling involved. Now, speaking, you mentioned academia. Yeah. And of course, you've been talking about LA. So tell us about how uh, Dennis Prager convinced you to quit school <laughs> and come out to LA for showbiz. 
I know LA of all places, right? You know, and of course, you know, I grew up in the South, uh, grew up in Georgia, moved to Alabama for college when the university of Alabama had a great three years there. Um, love that place so much, but I, you know, for me, I think what PragerU is doing is incredible work. And I think about when we talk about the direction the conservative movement needs to go, I say this often, you know, we can't just get by anymore about just preaching to the choir. We've got to grow the congregation. And that's been something that PragerU has been intentional about ever since its founding is about reaching new people, new voices with truth and fact, but also helping young people understand that there is another side to the argument. You know, thankfully, I went to the University of Alabama. I didn't have it as bad as many other students on other college campuses, but I know many students who do have it very, very bad. They sit in lecture halls and they're told that America is fundamentally racist, that it's bigoted, that it's anti-woman, anti-whatever disadvantaged community of the week that it is, when that just simply isn't the case. And so they graduate college and there is only one way for them to believe, only one way for them to think, and that is a fundamental lie. Uh, and I think that institutions like PragerU have done such great work to push back upon that lie and help make the case that education is still cool. Education is still good. And indoctrination should not be um, the the standard that we have, you know, for our college universities and institutions and, and things like that. And so, um, you know, it's been great to be a, great to be a part of this. But I got to say, the fight is only beginning. We are in a time of choosing right now, you know, that, that uh, much like when Reagan talked about it, uh, we have to decide what type of nation we wish to be. Will we be a nation of opportunity and freedom and, 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 and of those things, or will we be a nation of lawlessness, a nation that, that, that gives up an entire generation, my generation, um, to the left without challenge, without pushback. And, and I don't think that we should, I don't think that we can, because if America is truly going to survive my generation, Young people, they have to hear the other side of the argument. And we here at Prager, you're committed to bringing them that argument every single day. So I, I want to focus a little bit more on the fact that you left school, because I think it, yeah. it actually is related directly to what you said. And I'm hoping you're going to say what I think you're going to say, which is, gosh, why didn't you just stay another year and get and get the degree? If you were there three years or two, you know, like, why not just finish it? You've got your whole life ahead of you. What mm -hmm. was the rush? Yeah. Yeah, Answer? well, for me, number there's a few reasons. Number one, why subsidize indoctrination is a big thing for me. I think that at the end of the day, you know, I, I, you're paying tens of thousand dollars for an education, not indoctrination. I, and while I said I had it easier, that is true. There was still uh, instances at Alabama where there was professors who felt as if it was their obligation to teach students what to think and not how to think. Uh, so why subsidize that? I think that more and more conservatives should be more intentional um, about that decision, uh, especially when we do have the power of the purse. Colleges are a business, and while they are a heavily subsidized business, they are still a business. And uh, and let the free market talk, especially uh, at SEC schools like the ones that I went to. You know, you've got those season tickets to a football team. Maybe you should reevaluate that if your college goes woke. Maybe if you are a you know donation giving alumni, maybe you should look at that uh, if your institution is going woke. I think conservatives need to be intentional about actually responding to this indoctrination and not just taking it. I think that's important. But also number two, it's just really it came down to practicality as well. I think that at the end of the day, when I look about when I think about the things I've been able to accomplish um, throughout my political involvement, I did a lot of that without a college degree. Uh, and I think that what COVID also showed me is that knowledge and access to knowledge has become so democratized um, today that if you really want to learn something, you can just go on YouTube, go on 
Rumble, go on PragerU.com and you can do that. And so I think that at the end of the day, we need a generation more so of doers um, than anything. And, and, and that's what I'm so excited to do. I was actually in Tuscaloosa this past weekend, just visiting some friends. I was telling another friend of mine, I was like, you know, I love visiting here. I could never just be here, um, you know, full time again. Cause it's just like, I, you know, once you get, once you get to a place where you're doing important work, you're doing purposeful work. Um, there's nothing more fulfilling. You're so excited to do it. Um, I, my partying, my partying days are behind me. <laughs> uh, right. I mean, that's the other thing, right? I mean, is, is, is these big state schools, certainly, but most major universities are, they're just a, a form of arrested adolescence. I mean, you know, yeah. The, the, yeah. the drinking and the partying and the, you know, the licentiousness. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, and it gets exhausting. And it, it that's the best, that really is the best way to describe it. it is arrested adolescence where it's like, there are some friends that I have. I'm just really curious. I'm like, you know, we do graduate in a year. Like, like what's your, what's your plan? Cause it's just like, uh, you know, I think everyone eventually grows up and they grow out of it and all of those things and, and whatnot. But I think, yeah, if, if you really, I think if you're going to go to college, you got to have a plan and, you, and it needs to be um, rooted in something purposeful because if you don't, uh, it's very easy to descend into that very thing, that arrested adolescence um, that is not going to propel you into living the life in which you wish to live. And also too, we see the consequences that it has on also political outlook, right? Um, while yeah, it's obvious in the lifestyle choices, you know, going out every night and all of those things is also obvious in the way that people choose to think, um, you know, thinking that, you know, being pro-life is something that's wrong and not because you're actually opposed to it from a value standpoint, because you, but because you support abortion as a means of convenience, because you're like, well, I don't really want to have a kid right now because, you know, I just like partying every day. And so I, if she gets pregnant then or, you, or even, or even I just want to go to medical school, I, you know, I mean, even, right, yeah. even, so it's, it's like, not something so trivial. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is it's it's rooted in such a lie. Right. And what's interesting, I know this was a little bit controversial uh, on, on our side of the aisle last week. Um, but when Rihanna performed and she did so while pregnant and she's pointing your baby bump and all of these things, there's actually a subliminal message there to me that I think that conservatives would be wise to talk about is that when the left and all these celebrities and folks in Hollywood say that you have to choose, they are literally lying to you. Did Rihanna choose? Last week, when she performed at the halftime show, she didn't do it. When Beyonce uh, made her pregnancy unveiling, when she was performing again while pregnant at the Grammys or the Oscars or whatever it was a couple years ago, did she have to choose? No. So why are they saying that you have to choose? Uh, and you know, at the end of the day, though, like I'm not gonna if if, if more and more feminists are choosing not to reproduce, I am not gonna stop them. Uh, they should definitely do that. I saw that Chelsea Handler video. I know people were some people were upset. I responded to it last week as well. But if Chelsea Handler does not want to reproduce, I am jumping with glee. We should all be. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, what we do have going for us as well is we can outproduce these weirdos. Uh, and I think that that would be the best thing to happen to America. If we only have conservative folks reproducing and imparting their great values, their great American values to their children, I think that's a win, Ron. I think that is a big win. So I, I think you you did hit the the points that I was looking for, which is that first of all, there isn't necessarily any real difference between having a degree and not having a degree for you. 
and for a lot of other people, it's good to get, yeah. and, you know, and, and I do think there's something to be said for the difference between education in a, in a college setting at its best compared to watching a bunch of videos or reading a bunch of books, because in, you know, the best teachers at every level guide you through the material and ask you the right yeah. questions and help you learn to ask the right questions yourself. But there's yeah. so little of that apparently going on in colleges today. Yeah. Um, and as you said, it is, you know, it, it is to a large extent, it's a racket. It's a business. Um, it's, it's operated for a cadre of administrators who make outlandish salaries to mostly make trouble, stir up racial and yeah. sexual animosity. Uh, you know, tremendous number of, of increase in administrators and, and uh, you know, a reduction in academic quality. Now, how much of a university, Prager University isn't really a degree granting institution, right? No, no, no. So yeah, we primarily focus on educational content, edutainment uh, is, you know, what our CEO calls it, um, that give you big ideas, but also in, in some pretty digestible formats and content. You know, of course, I think we're best known for our five minute videos where we break down a range of topics um, about lots of issues, whether it be guns, whether it be, uh, you know, things like even modern day architecture and all of those things. Um, but provide the counterpoint to a lot of what we do see on college campuses and universities. And so that's a lot more of our focus there as far as, you know, we don't do any degree granting, you know, things like that. But there are institutions, you know, that that are like Prager U's and brick and mortar. You know, like at Hillsdale, look at Liberty. Um, look at what they're doing in Florida with the new college of Florida. You have Chris Rufo on the board of trustees there now. And I think there's also some other conservative professors that were appointed, one of which is a Hillsdale professor. Right. Um, which is, you know, an incredible thing, by the way, to Ron DeSantis' credit. Um, it's a very innovative way of taking on this entire indoctrination issue, right? Because it's like, you know, what's interesting is that, like you said, it's very much administrator driven. Um, you have a lot of administrators who, you know, what's interesting is that tuition increases every year. You don't necessarily see a difference in forced delivery or the quality of the education that these kids are getting. Um, but yet you do see significant raises being had by the administrative class of the university, the DEI professor or the DEI, the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're making, you know, tons of money, but no one really ever knows what exactly they do um, other than release statements and hold talks with people who hate America. It's also, um, you know, become almost impossible for white males to get tenor track positions in universities now. It yeah. is virtually, regardless of the quality of the work, they're simply not getting hired. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. It's like, it truly, it, it, and it just goes to show what, like, what a farce this all is. Like, these people don't actually care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, because if they did, there would be a lot more diversity of viewpoint as well. Uh, and diversity wouldn't just be weaponized against keeping white people out of spaces. It would just seek to include more people in them, right? Um, but that's not what this is at all about um but i think again when it when it comes to like what is the solution to this i think again be intentional about where you send your kids and where you um you know pay your tuition dollars also be intentional about whether or not you even need to go to college you know as you said it's not really a requirement for me and, and the work that i do and and all of those things but it's not a requirement for a lot of other people who want to do a lot of other things you know if you want to go into marketing if you want to go into sales go do that like your network is your net worth and so many 
of these careers and, 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 and occupations. Like if you want to be a lawyer and a doctor, obviously you have to go to college. If you want to be an architect, you obviously have to go to college, but there are so many careers in which you don't today. Uh, and again, it just goes back to the fact Access to knowledge is so democratized today. Like there are so many ways to teach yourself new trades, new skills, all of these things, and also graduate with a lot less debt um, than you otherwise would. And so I think that, you know, that is a big a part of it. But from a policy perspective, I don't really think there is anyone who has really looked at a better way of doing it than DeSantis. Stack these board of trustees if you're in a red state, because the thing is, even in red states, this is happening. Alabama is ruby red, but there were still things happening on campus at times that or completely, um, you know, you know, like something that you would not think would happen on a campus in a red state, but it does because these professors, you know, they're not the card carrying Republicans. They're the 10% of people that vote against the Republican candidate in the election. You know, they're part of that group. And so I think that's the thing we've got to, we've got to protect our institutions and we've got to learn how to wield power. You know, again, if you have publicly funded institutions in these red states, you know, the left is doing it. And I understand there are going to be someone who comments and listens to this and be like, well, we are better than them. Well, that is what losers say when they are oppressed and victimized. I, like if you want to live on your knees and say, well, at least I I, I lost with honor. That's not that, that's not for me. If it's for you, it's OK. It's just not for me. Well, um, you have seen me say that. And and not because I'm a loser, but because I say. You, you certainly don't want to become what you despise. You don't want to become yeah. what you hate in order to defeat it, because then what are you accomplishing it? But you're right. The idea that the idea that you should always uh, always compete wearing white gloves, you know, and 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 and, and give the other guy uh, every benefit of the doubt is, is is certainly naive. And I do think there are uh, young Republicans such such as you and even. DeSantis is a young guy compared to me, who I get, who I think get this, and, and I think to some extent Donald Trump injected that sensibility uh, into the Republican Party in a way that we really hadn't seen in a long time. You know, yeah. CJ, you've got a million things to say about a million things. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you before we go off. Yeah, what's the plan? Are you going to stay? Do you see yourself here in in the long term? Uh, long term for you being a relative uh, um, concept. Um, <laughs> you know what what. what what five years from now what's what do you think we're going to be seeing you know what i've learned uh is that when man makes plans god laughs you know if you would have asked me a few years ago if i would have dropped out of alabama moved to la i would have told you that you were writing pure fiction uh and so what i have learned is just to be present where i am and to be so excited to fight every single day uh, for a country that I love so much. Uh, America is the greatest nation in the world, and it is not great by accident. And I think that if we're going to continue to make this country great, keep this country great, um, then we've got to join the fight. It's no longer time to sit on the sidelines and watch as the left destroys every single meaningful institution in this country. Uh, it's, it's not okay to sit on the sidelines and watch as the left seeks to indoctrinate and gaslight my generation millions of young Americans to believe in they are oppressed in the greatest and freest nation in the world. And so whatever I can do to aid that fight uh, and to be a part of the solution, I'm excited to do. Uh, and so excited to be here, Prager you. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like you said, it's all relative for me. I'm 20. So I have a few years ahead of me. And I'll tell you what I'm else. You excited to see where it lives, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, a lot of people my age and a lot of people listening to this will disagree with me, but I do think planning is overrated. 
notwithstanding mm-hmm. the seven years of higher education displayed on my wall behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, my career took a very unplanned path. And if I would have, if I would have let, if I would have listened to myself more closely and understood what was right for me, I could have avoided a lot of dead ends and been happier doing what I do as a lawyer a lot sooner than it took me to get to that point. And, you know, and and also, you know, the paths, the career paths that your parents and people my age grew up with the idea that, you know, there's college graduate school or college and then a corporate, uh, you know, a major corporation. And then you go through all these steps and then you retire with a pension that's over. Yeah. That's over. That's even over for people in the, in the professions. Everyone has to be entrepreneurial. Everyone has to be, uh, you know, basically it's all one gig economy. Even as corporations get bigger and more dominant and, and merge with government and our freedom and choice actually become constricted in many ways. On the other hand, yeah. the digital revolution has enabled more people to come up. I mean, the very existence of, of Prager University is an entirely virtual phenomenon. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, also to your point, like, you know, I heard a quote recently and it was like, your North Star in life should not be position. It should be purpose. Right. So it's like, if you try to plan like, oh, in five years, I want to be in Congress or in five years, I want to be working in this or doing whatever. That's when you get really, I think, lost. And it's very easy to also get downtrodden when you don't hit those arbitrary benchmarks that you set for yourself. Well, you but know, if your North Star is purpose and it's, hey, I want to actually be a part of helping us take back the culture, or I want to help get more young people involved in spaces that they're not typically always welcome in or always all that present in, then that is a lot different. So it's like you fall more in love with the process then and not necessarily the destination, which as you're going anywhere, you've got to fall in love with the process if you're going to, you know, keep the energy to get to where you want to be. And so you're idealistic, CJ. You're not, you know, we're, we're kindred spirits in that regard. You know, I, most people aren't idealistic. Most people, in fact, do fit better and, you know, into a pre, you know, into a grooves that they can understand. And I think mm-hmm. your challenge as someone who's doing what you're doing is going to be to continue to reach out to those people and do exactly what you just said, which is shake them by the by the collar and say you can't sit by you it's not going to happen for you unless you make it happen because that's the world that's the 21st century exactly exactly uh you know there's another quote too it's like you know winners do what losers won't right and at the end of the day it's like there are so many people who have so much talent but if you don't actually do the work and don't actually put your put yourself in a position to win you, you won't and I think that that has been, unfortunately, a lesson that has been lost upon a lot of people in my generation is that they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. Um, but what they realize is that there's nothing coming unless you go and get it and you go and chase it, um, which is why, you know, it's so interesting to me is like when I made the decision to leave, um, there are a lot of people who were very, very confused by it, even despite the fact, you know, PragerU is a huge company doing great work and all of these things. It's a great opportunity. They were like, well, you got to get that piece of paper. And it was something that, you know, for the, for me, it was crazy to like, even think that like, cause you go to college to get a job. And if I'm getting my dream job and I'm getting this, you know, this role that I'm super excited about, then I'm still reaching the same objective that I otherwise would have a year ahead of time now um, by taking the position. 
But I think it just also goes back to, again, it, it's been a, a myth that has been perpetuated for such a long time that a lot of people are just set in their ways. They think that, that like, you know, once they get that piece of paper, that everything um, will be okay for them, that, that, that their path will be made when that just simply isn't the case. There are tons of people who I feel like have that piece of paper who are like, wow, did I really spend a hundred thousand dollars for this? You know? So it depends on, it's, it's far more about the person than any piece of paper will ever be. You're hundred percent right. TJ, believe it or not, it, we have chewed up on the better part of an hour. Fantastic chatting with you. Yeah. <laughs> way, way. That's so funny. Excellent talking with you. I'm going to look out for you uh, on Prager University and let's stay in touch. Thank you so much for joining us and culminating. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.